You can be seated. So the last time we talked about vehicles, I informed you that I was using my father-in-law's Acura. Well, actually, it's my mother-in-law's Acura, but my father-in-law bought it for my mother-in-law because the cars that she buys were always kind of poochy, didn't have very good acceleration. And so he wanted a vehicle that when he had to drive it, it was fun to drive, so he got an Acura TL. They were gone for the winter. They let me use it because we were short a vehicle because we have a new driver in our, in our house who's doing an excellent job, I might add. He's also the spider whisperer that we'll find out about later. So I wanted a different vehicle, okay? I wanted a different vehicle, a new-to-me, albeit used vehicle, and, 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 and I'd say want as opposed to need, although some people in my family would say it was a need. So I give my friend CJ a call. And in our fairness in conversation, I could have asked many of my friends to help in this endeavor because I got a lot of friends. And not just a few of them are into cars. So there's a, there's a big, but I had this complex algorithm, okay? And I inputted height and age and out spit, spat, spit, spat, CJ's name. So I give CJ a call and he's like, yeah, I can find you something that's gently used, high miles, didn't wait long. A couple days later, he's got a Chevrolet pickup truck, the bow tie ready to go. Now, I don't buy a vehicle without talking with Jeff Schwalbe, okay? Jeff Schwalbe's like my dad, if my dad were still alive, okay? You go to your dad for certain things, and if your dad says yes, your dad says no, you just follow him, okay? At least at a certain age, okay? Probably before 25, if your dad tells you to do something, you don't want to do it, okay? After 25, you follow. Okay, so like Jeff is like my dad when it comes to vehicles, so he checks out the truck. He's like, it's a good truck. He's like, I like the year, a 2006. I like the manual 4x4 transfer case. He's like, but there's one thing. The anti-lock brakes aren't working like they should work. You might want to have that checked out. So I give CJ a call back. CJ's like, hey, bring it in. We'll fix it. So the problem was a wheel speed sensor. So my, my truck's very smart, a very smart truck. Okay, It even has a brain. So the wheel speed sensor goes bad, and it sends a little electrical impulse, not like your body when something's going wrong, a little extra electrical impulse goes to the brain, the computer of the truck, and it says, hey, we got a problem here. Then the truck itself identifies the appropriate circuitry to follow and lights up a light on the dash that says your anti-lock brakes are not working. It's wonderful how this thing works, just like the central nervous system of a human being. It's here where the story gets interesting because the previous owner saw that light. He saw it. I know he saw it. And if you think that I'm being pejorative or misogynist, okay, it could have been a woman who owned the truck, but a woman would have fixed the problem. What the guy did was take a roll of black electrician's tape and his Leatherman, okay, and with the skill, with the skill of a plastic surgeon, cuts out a perfect patch places it over the light. Problem solved. <laughs> Problem solved. That's it. Like I said, a woman would have fixed it. A guy just covers up the... There's no problem here. There's no problem so big I can't cover up with electrician's tape. It's closely related to there's no problem so big that I can't run away from. Try that sometime. You like spiders? Well, One-fourth of my family likes spiders. One-half of my family hates spiders. And one quarter of my family is a flat-out spider whisperer. I mean, seriously, there'll be a spider inside. We'll call his name. He'll come into the room. The spider will gently crawl into his hands. He will carry the spider outside and release it to do its business and take care of business outside. There's an 
article in the March issue of the Science of Nature Journal talking about how amazing spiders are. There are these two gentlemen, scientists, Martin Niffler and Klaus Burkhofer, who have done some research and they estimate that spiders in a given year consume between 400 million and 800 million tons of prey. That's getting it done. Okay, that's flat out getting it done. Human beings come close to the bottom number. Human beings roughly consume 400 million tons of meat and fish every year. Spiders eat 10% of their body weight each day. A diet that is mostly insects, and and that's why we like spiders, because they take out mosquitoes. But the reason why they take out mosquitoes is they have webs, and we don't like spiders because of the webs that they leave on their house. Here's where it gets interesting. Martin and Klaus estimate that it would take 2,000 spiders to eat a 200-pound human being in one day. (laughs) The junior high boy in me loves this story. Absolutely loves this story. When you consider that if you add up the weight of all the adults in the world, you tip the scales at 287 million tons. Throw in another 70 million tons of children, and you arrive at a very disturbing inequality. Spiders eat more in a year than the number of humans that exist on planet Earth. If they wanted to, they could take over. Perhaps what's even more disconcerting is that there are spiders right now in this room looking at you each of them with their eight little eyeballs, wondering what a delightful Easter brunch would taste like. Our text today is going to be flipping between two different pages, 906, 907, well, actually, that section, and then page 1042, 1042. So if you want, you can put one hand on 906, the other hand at 1042, and we'll be going back and forth. Does that sound good? All right, wonderful. The 906 first. Left-hand column, bottom, number 20, the resurrection. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran, the author, and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Now, the other disciple is John, who is the author of the book of John, as well as author of the book of Revelation, okay? So she ran, went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, the Lord, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were both going toward the tomb, Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and he believed. It is one fine day. It was a most significant day in the New Testament. It was very truly the best day of my life, of our lives, past tense. Mary was the first to witness, the first to share. John is one of the first to record. And then John and Peter, man, could they run. 
witnessing the empty tomb, witnessing the hope of God. Now, it's important that we understand that that the hope of God isn't like, well, I hope that's going to happen in a sort of wishy-washy sort of way. It's more definitive than that. It's, no, this is the hope of God, the empty tomb, which means that Jesus has been raised from the dead. This event places into motion a new way of doing business, a pathway of hope, a way in which humans and their creator can be, well, the relationship can be reestablished. The simple fact that sin doesn't have to weigh so heavily and cause death. The notion that Satan doesn't get to win and that death ultimately is not final. It's the hope of the world. It means that God's created order doesn't have to constantly look over its shoulder wondering what's going to happen next. It is hope that Jesus has done something that only Jesus could do so that we could be restored in our relationship with our Creator. Have you ever felt like you wanted to have hope? Have you ever wondered what it would be like to live with hope? Jesus, on this day, gives hope to the hopeless. Jesus creates a pathway for the most significant relationship that we will ever have to take place. A relationship with the God who creates us and loves us and desperately wants to redeem us if we're willing to say, I want to be with you. It's critical because through John's hand, we understand what God has done, both in the book of John and in the book of Revelation. And it invites the thought of the role that we should play if we know Jesus Christ, if we have been introduced to Jesus Christ, the role that we play not only in absorbing all that that means for ourselves, but, but making that known to the world around us, to the sphere of influence with which we relate. Jesus is risen. And it happened so quickly that his disciples were in some ways caught flat-footed in their grief. One fine day, number two, flipping to 1042. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. These are words that Jesus spoke, John recorded, that we get to read and understand today. Verse 20 again, there's a a re-emphasis of it. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. This notion of a second fine day, future tense. It will be the best day of our lives for those who are found in Christ. We are at the end of the book of Revelation. We've been studying this book for a year plus, and we've discovered, we've discovered that John could really dream. But that's not quite it, right? Because it's not a dream. It's an experience that John had, led by, facilitated by God, in which Revelation describes it as John being in the Spirit. 
He's the first to witness the new heaven and the new earth. And it's important that he witnesses that because he gets to tell us about it. For anyone who wonders, what is it like to be a follower of Christ? It is the reality of this inheritance. Heaven is before those who follow him. It's not a spoiler alert to tell you that it's going to happen. Jesus is returning. And the sense that we should have is one of anticipation, one of excitement. Kind of like with April the Giraffe. You know this one? April the Giraffe. You know what I'm talking about, right? The New York City Zoo. April the Giraffe. She, she gave birth to her calf yesterday morning, okay? And, and, and it's been amazing. People have been watching. There's been a live video feed the whole time. Now, now, first off, gestation for a mother giraffe is 16 months, which in itself is a bit. For the baby giraffe being born, the, the first thing that happens is you have to survive the six-foot drop to earth. Because mama giraffes give birth standing up. So some of us, we use the phrase, we were dropped on our head at birth, and that explains our behavior. It's literally true for a baby giraffe. They come out head first and get dropped six foot to the deck. That's a good thing, though. Don't be alarmed, because it shocks the baby into breathing. (laughs) April the giraffe gave birth. People around the world were so excited waiting for the birth of her fourth calf. And it's nothing like this. Not even close. Jesus says, I am coming soon. The the sense of urgency. The sense of even invitation to not be flat-footed. To not be caught unaware. To not be caught unprepared. Now, in between those two fine days, one in the past, one in the present, in the future rather, is a whole set of things that can happen in the lives of those who are truly paying attention. Flipping back to 906, actually we're going to be on 907. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs. Verse 30, chapter 20, page 907, about two-thirds of the way down on the left-hand column. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Back to verse 8, John saw and he believed. This notion of belief It's not just intellectual assent. It's not just saying, oh, I believe that chair is sitting in front of me and it's kind of a topi brown. The belief, the the word that, that John uses is pregnant with meaning and the meaning revolves around relationship. The meaning revolves around intentionality about the individual who believes not simply the intellectual reality that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, but believes the relationship that can happen, that comes out of that, that believes all that God intended to do to restore the relationship between me and him and you and him if we're willing to believe It 
it really becomes the most important decision that you will ever make. I know, we think of our lives in terms of decisions that we've made. Who to marry, where to live, vehicles to buy, what to eat for lunch. Nothing even comes close to the importance of believing in Jesus Christ. Between two fine days, the whole game starts with belief. And then, flipping to 1042, and now we'll stay here for the rest of our time today. There's a whole series of invitations, exhortations, if you will, bits of encouragement that, that John writes at the end of this book that talks about the future. Well, it starts in verse 11. Let the evil doer still do evil, and let the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. And the encouragement, obviously, from the last half of that verse is this notion that if a person is a follower of Jesus Christ, that they should engage and continue to follow Jesus Christ, irrespective of what's happening in the world around them. The first part of the verse is a little fuzzy because we're like, what, what, I don't know exactly Filthy still be filthy, evildoers still do either. What's really going on here? John is just identifying what is true. John is identifying that the things that we do are reflective of what is in our heart. That our behaviors can choose to enhance God's reputation. That our behavior can honor God if our heart is aligned with God. And likewise, if our heart is not aligned with God, then our behaviors will be reflective of that reality. Want what is in your heart to change? Ask God. Wondering if what is in your heart needs to change? Ask your spouse. Or your mom. Moms will give it to you straight, okay? Straight up, no ice, no water, no chaser, nothing. And if you don't have a mom, because I don't, because she's died, okay, and she left me high and dry, but that's okay, I don't hold it against her. Okay, that was a choice. Well, maybe not entirely. But, but, but if you don't have a mom, find someone who's willing to speak into your life. Not a perspective of being your best friend telling you that everything's great, but a person who's honestly willing to challenge you and say, really, is that how you want to live in light of the God that you serve? It's challenges to be the people, to live in a way that honors God, that honors the relationship. Verse 14 talks about a little laundry. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Now this imagery is kind of a little, especially as we stand today, it's, it's, it's challenging, okay? Because the imagery of washing their robes is washing their robes in the blood of a lamb, which is just an intriguing metaphor. And I understand it can be challenging. Why would you wash a garment in blood and expect it to turn out white? It doesn't make sense unless you're looking at things from God's perspective. God has this simple reality, this simple economy that something must die for something else to live. 
something innocent without sin must be sacrificed to save something valuable that is affected by sin. To put as fine a point on it as possible, something, Jesus, without sin, had to die so that something valuable, you and me, do you know how valuable you are to God? Do you know how utterly valuable you are to God? Something, Jesus, must be sacrificed to save something valuable, you and me, who have been affected by sin. John doesn't pull any punches. He acknowledges that not everyone will accept the message that Jesus gives. Not everyone will believe. Verse 15 talks about those who are outside. Verse 18 has a warning in it. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues. If anyone takes away words of prophecy of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. It's more than a penalty for early withdrawing. It's a penalty for messing with the message of God. Ultimately, a penalty for rejecting and for those of us who would say, well, I haven't rejected God, God would say, well, if you haven't accepted me, you've rejected me. Verse 21 ends in this moment of hope. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. The grace of Jesus, God giving us the good stuff that we don't deserve. May the grace of Jesus Christ be on our lives for all of our days. So what do we do with spiders and warning lights on pickup trucks? It seems at least in my experience and the experiences that I've had with friends that, that we tend to worry about things that either we cannot control or have a small probability of happening. Spiders probably won't take over the world, even though they could, theoretically. If you're worried about a spider taking over the world, you probably don't have to be worried about it. And we laugh at it because it's funny, but you would be amazed how much time we spend worrying about stuff that's really not worth worrying about. The other side of that is the reality that people have this ability to ignore a very real problem. We figure if we just put a piece of black tape over the warning light, it'll go away. If we put a piece of black tape over God pinging and saying, hey, pay attention, I'm trying to get your attention. If, if we just ignore it, it'll go away. And yet God continues to show up in small and big ways in our lives, inviting us to pay attention to listen to him. We don't pretend to know everything here at Timberwood Church. We're far from perfect. We live with huge inconsistencies. But we do know what is real and what can be solved. And we would tell you that knowing Jesus, following Jesus, is everything. 
It's in everything that started with an Easter long, long ago. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you today. And for all of us who are living without hope right now, give us what we need to survive this day. Father, may we be challenged by the Easter story. May we be challenged to believe, to follow, to engage with you. To know that we are forgiven. To follow your Son, Jesus, as our Lord for all of our days. Father, thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.